right. All right, thanks for uh, having me here today. And as Pastor uh, Sangmin said, that we met in, uh, I forgot, it's almost eight, nine years ago, right? And uh, Pastor Sangmin was one of the guys. I went there. I was the only one from the United States, and everybody else was working in Korea. So I was kind of like the outsider. And uh, I kind of felt like, you know, am I going to be able to get along with these guys? And, and uh, me and Pastor Sangmin hit it off right away because felt like we were like-minded and like-hearted in ministry. So we had a lot in common. And uh, so through the years, we've been keeping in touch and just through the ups and downs of ministry, how God has persevered. And, and this is the first time visiting your church. I've been wanting to visit your church for a while. And uh, honestly, uh, I was so blessed by your worship. You know, our, the worship leader really worships like somebody who met the Lord. You know, and uh, I, I was so blessed. I, if I was in town, I would just come just, just to sing with you. I was just so blessed by your worship team and the worship leader. Um, I'm going to teach off of a subject that is rarely talked about. Um, not because of it's not the, there's, it's not significant, but because there's not a lot of material written on this man, of Andrew. Typically, when we talk about apostles, we think about you know, Apostle Peter, Apostle Paul, or, or the Sons of Thunder. But Andrew is a guy who just kind of appears and he disappears into the background. So there's not much written about him. But I think the subject of who he is is very intriguing, very interesting. And, uh, and so I wanted to take uh, at least this Sunday to, to speak with you because I think this is a subject that, that matters quite a bit. Um, let me pray for us and then we'll just go, jump into the message this morning. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your grace for us individually and as a church, and especially, Lord God, this particular church as they are wrestling to honor you, to glorify you, to spread the gospel in a country that is in desperate need, Lord God, of your witness. We pray, Father, for strength. We pray your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us through your word and that you would have your word go forth and not return until it has accomplished its purpose. And so we ask for your anointing this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, just to, since this is my first time being here, just to kind of give you a short introdu- introduction to myself. Um, I'm a middle child. I don't know how many of you guys are middle children. Any middle children in here? Okay, good. You say it proudly. All right. Typically, uh, when you say somebody's a middle child, it's not a compliment. You know, it's like, oh, you're a middle child. Oh, that's why you act like that. Or you're so stubborn, you know, or like... Um, I would say, and, and not all middle children are like that, but I would say I'm the prototypical middle children, middle child. I have an older brother and a younger brother. And so I always grew up thinking life's not fair. You know what I mean? No matter what, if I fight with my older brother, you know, it's my fault for disrespecting my older brother. And if I fight with my younger brother, I, 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 it was my fault for not caring for my younger brother, right? And so whether that was true or not, now that I have children, I have four children, and dealing with two middle children of my own, uh, it, it's, it's not, whatever is done, it's not done purposely, but you just kind of like, the first child, whatever he does is brand new, so everything's exciting. The youngest one, because he's the baby of the home, it becomes a big deal. And then the two in the middle, not that it's not important, but it's just like, in, in the scheme of raising kids, like you're doing one, and then another one comes, and another one comes, and, you know, and I remember one comedian he, I think he said he had four kids, and he asked them, what is it like to have four kids? It's like, imagine you drowning, and then they throw you another child. You know what I mean? And that's how he described it was like to have four or five kids. And so 
you know, as an adult, I can understand. But growing up, prototypically, I grew up thinking life is not fair. And then what made it worse was we left Korea in 1975 when I was seven going on eight. And when we went in 1975, I mean, Korea was a dirt poor country. And so nobody owned cars. You know, uh, we rarely ate meat. Banana was like more expensive than meat. And I remember whenever we were going to have meat, my mom would announce it a month before. You know, we're going to have meat. So don't go out. You know, make sure you stick around because it was such a big deal. So when we went to U.S. in 1975, U.S. was heaven on earth. At least that's how people thought, right? And there's a lot of people coming to U.S. thinking that that's where it is. And that's how Korea was. Everybody wanted to go. The biggest dream was to go to the United States because then you can eat and do whatever you want. And so in 1975, when my dad went to U.S. first in 74, he went there to study. He, got his, uh, he was a pastor and was getting his MDiv. And then after a year, he invited us to come. And we, you know, I was like the big hit at my school because I was going to the United States. And when I got to the United States in Philadelphia, uh, I, it was, I was not disappointed at all. Oh, somebody from Philadelphia? Okay. I was not disappointed at all because I remember getting off the airplane and everything was so big. And my dad, the first thing he did was he took us to a supermarket. And back then in Korea, you know, a supermarket, they called it a supermarket, but it was, it was the size of 7-Eleven. I mean, so going to a supermarket in the United States, and I thought it was all free. Okay, you know, it took me a while to realize it wasn't free, but... Going to U.S. and seeing the supermarket, all this is free. Everything that they said was true. My dad showed up in some car, you know, and I said, oh, my dad got rich in one year. And then I found out that he paid like 50 50 bucks. It was a piece of junk car. But for us, the fact that he had a car was a huge deal. So I thought, yeah. And then very first day, my dad came, came home with a box of bananas. So I thought, man, we've made it. We're, we're in heaven because... In Korea, in order to eat bananas, like, you'd have to be rich. I, I don't, I'm, I'm sure it's not like that now, but, you know, it's one of the cheapest fruits. Later on, I found out that whole box costs like $3, you know. But when I went to U.S. the first time, I think, wow, this is awesome. But it didn't take long for me to realize that I didn't fit in. You know, the, we were in Philadelphia. There were three Asians in school. That was me, my older brother, my younger brother, you know. <laughs> And, and they let us know it, every opportunity they get, you know, like that we didn't fit in. We didn't fit in. So after about four years, four or five years of that, we moved from Philadelphia to Kansas. And you think there's no minorities in Philadelphia in Kansas. I actually had kids follow me home because they were curious how somebody like me, some, you know, Korean-American would live. And then from there, I went to deep south in Atlanta, you know, and you talk about you know, discrimination. I mean, even as a child, I, I, every day I went to school, it was like, I don't fit in. Why did we come here? So it added to, to this bitterness that I had when I was younger. And then we moved back to Korea in 1980, 1980, yeah, about 1980. And I stayed here for two years. And I remember coming back to Korea thinking, yes, I'm going back home where I finally belong. But as soon as I got here, I started getting into fights. And, and whenever they would say something, it's like, go back to your country. And that was so confusing. So I thought, I, I, I didn't belong there. And now I'm starting to realize I don't belong here either. So I would get into fights. And every time I would get into fights, somebody would say, yeah, are you American? He's like, American? I was only there for four years. 
Eventually, my parents decided to move back to U.S. because of our studies, because missing school for four or five years, and there was a lot of political turmoil here. If you watch the movies and you know Korean history, that's when uh, the president, you know, Park Chung-hee got assassinated, and there was protests going on everywhere. And so because of that turmoil, my older brother had to get ready to go to college, and so we knew that it was going to be too hard, so my parents decided to move back to the U.S., but I remember the second time going back to the U.S., I went kicking and screaming because I was already about 12 years old. And I have such a vivid memory because my best friend of the time, when he found out that I was going back to the United States, he cried for two, three months. And because he was so sad, it made me sad. And I remember the, my last memory before I came back to visit of Korea was at Kimpo. And this is before Incheon was, was there, at Kimpo my friend screaming and, and yelling because he didn't want me to go, and then me screaming, my parents having to grab me and literally drag me onto the plane and crying the whole time away because I didn't want to go back to the United States. We tried so hard, maybe for about six months, to write letters to each other. But obviously, you know, back then, you write a letter, it would take a month to get there and another month to come back if you write, wrote right away. And having about four or five, you know, discourses back and forth, and we ended up losing touch. And so even to this day, I haven't spoken to him since. So my memory of us going to the U.S. was just bitterness. And then that added to that middle child syndrome that I had, just bitter and angry. You know? And so from 12 to about 16 years old, those four years, I got into so much trouble. And just because I was an angry kid. And, and I remember every once in a while my mom would say, you know, I should have been more disciplined with you. I should have been harsher with you. And then I would say, if you did that, I would have never stuck around, right? I was ready to go even without you doing that. And I, I had so much anger. It's like, why, why do we go to the United States? Why was I raised in a Christian uh, uh, a pastor's family? Why, why did we go back to Korea? Why did we go back to the United States? Why were we so poor? Why was I born a middle child? Life is just not fair. Now, you don't have to be a middle child you don't have to have experienced what I experienced early on in life to have that embedded in your heart. You, know, you, you may be from a broken home. Maybe something tragic happened in your life. Maybe there's something about your life and you think, why is God not fair? Why didn't he give me this? And why didn't he give, give why, why is it so easy for them? And why is it so difficult for me? And so that perspective perpetuates and causes you to see a paradigm of everything you see, you see through that lens. God is not fair. God is not. Even in the context of worshiping him, even after you meet the Lord, there's that, that lens that you see through. It wasn't until I met the Lord in 1983, in December 26, 11.30 p.m. The reason why I know that so vividly is because before I met the Lord, I literally just wanted to die. Like, I, I just, life just didn't matter. I was just so bitter and angry. I was getting into so much trouble. I was already arrested. I had several police records, and I was just about to get into the serious stuff. And then when I met the Lord, instantaneously, that bitterness and anger just, just disappeared. And the reason why it disappeared is because I realized that God did this, that God was in the midst of all of this. And the whole reason why I was wondering, why do we come back to why do we come back to the United States? And the moment I met Christ, I realized this is why. This is why I was in pain. This is why I was suffering. This is why if I didn't have this, if he didn't take me through this, I wouldn't have landed where I was. And 
I knew that from that day on, when people ask me, when did you decide to go into full-time ministry? Full-time ministry, pastoral ministry, was the last thing I wanted to do because I grew up in a family, you know, doing ministry, and we, we experienced hardship. But the day that I became a Christian, I knew that I was going to spend the rest of my life telling other people about the Christ that I met. And so to this day, and that's been, what, almost, it's been 40 years, almost 40 years this, this, this December that I met the Lord. And even to this day, my desire to see people come to Christ is just as strong it was when I first met the Lord. Because Christ has changed my perspective of life. And now, what does this have to do with talking about Andrew? Andrew is the middle child of the, of the apostles. Andrew's a guy we know so little about. In fact, at, in the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, when you look up Apostle Andrew, one of the descriptions it says in the New Testament about Andrew shows little interest in Andrew. That's what it says in the Bible dictionary. Andrew, there's little, New Testament shows very little interest in Andrew. And that's, all, that's pretty much all it says because there's not a lot of written about him. But if you see how Andrew starts his life with Christ, you would think that he would be the apostle. He's the first among the apostles. He's the first one. Before Peter, before John, before James, before any other apostles, Andrew's the one who introduces everybody else. And then he just disappears in the background. What happened to him? Right? I want to highlight who he is. Just the, the, the few things that are said about him is significant enough. I, I want you to at least, if you've never heard this message again about Andrew, at least you'll say, yeah, I know something about Andrew. Okay? First of all, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. Now, why is that significant? Remember, John the Baptist's whole ministry was to prepare for Christ, right? So John the, John the Baptist had his own disciples, and when Christ appears, John did such a good job, his disciples just like, there he is, and they just leave him. And they start following Christ. So I want you to, I want to read a text in John 1, 35 to 41, because there's not a lot written about him, so I, at least in this text, I want you to understand what's going on. Verse 35, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, this is John the Baptist, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Okay. Now, we know that one of the two disciples is Andrew, because it states it later. Some think that the other disciple was John. Okay. Now, we don't know that for sure, so you're speculating because it's never, spelled, it's, it's never spelled out, right? It's never clarified. But we know for sure Andrew was one of these guys. It says, 38, and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? They, they said to him, Rabbi, which translated me, teachers, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come in and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's, Simon Peter's brother. Okay? So we know that Andrew didn't start his ministry with Jesus. He already forsook everything. He already left everything and was a disciple of John the Baptist. Now, you have to understand, at that particular time, discipleship didn't happen at church. It didn't happen in a small group. It didn't happen like you went to work all day and then you came back in nighttime. We had a discipleship group. That's not how discipleship happened. Disciples of this particular time 
you have to leave everything and basically live and do everything that your master does. So you would, wherever you go, wherever the disciple would go, you would go and you would live with him as long as you are being discipled by him. So you have to understand, John the Baptist was not a happy-go-lucky guy. At least, you know, whenever you see somebody depicting Christ, you see him with a halo over his head, like a smile, bright, very inviting. Sometimes you have children sitting on his lap, and he's telling them a story, and that's kind of like the picture you see of Christ. You ever Google John the Baptist? John the Baptist is never portrayed in a happy... He's serious, right? He's preaching hell and fire, And so you always see him in black and white. He's never even in color. Go look him up, right? Whenever John the Baptist is portrayed, serious guy, living out in the desert, eating locusts, you know what I mean? He's not portrayed as an easy, welcoming guy, right? Now, I say all this because he's that guy's disciple, right? So we don't know how long he's been walking with him, but he already left everything. He was disciple of John the Baptist. So... And the whole purpose of all of that was to prepare him. And remember when Jesus shows up, what John the Baptist says? He must increase. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. John did such a good job. When Jesus shows up, he said, there he is. And there's no wrestling. It's like, oh, is it okay if we leave? You know what I mean? Like, I discipled you all this time and you're just going to go like that? Right? And you would think there'd be some struggle. And he said, there he is. And he said, the two guys just got up and left. (laughs) They just left. But John did such a good job training them, preparing them. So however long that he was with John, Andrew was with John, uh, with Andrew, uh, that he was ready for this, right? So considering all that, you would think he's the first disciple. He was trained before with John preparing for the Messiah to come. So he had a head start before any of the other apostles. That you would think that he would be the head guy, right? You would think that he would be the guy that Jesus goes to, and he's assigned. He's the main guy. You know that none of this happens, right? He does all of it. He starts out with a bang, and then he just disappears to the background. In fact, all of the New Testament, there's only 12 times that he's mentioned. Not of the 12 times, four of them is just a list of disciples. A majority of the other eight, he just mentioned in passing. So what I just shared with you is basically the sum of, some of the big chunk of what we know about Andrew. Right? So the question is, why did he go to the background? Why was he treated unfairly? Right? At least that's what we would think. That's the first thing that I would say. And I always said, if I get to heaven, you know, people ask me, who do you want to see? It's like, I want to see Andrew. I want to go straight up to Andrew. and said, Andrew, what happened to you? Like, why, why, why were you forgotten? You know what I mean? Why did you go to the background? You, you're a middle child, right? I understand you. I remember uh, when my, I have... Uh, I told you I had two middle children. The third one is a girl, and it's the only girl in our home, so she's not really a middle child, right? Because she's the only female in our home. But I have a second child, uh, in typical middle child. And I remember when he was a young kid, when he would get mad at his older brother, instead of directly saying, I hate you, or, you know, why are you doing this to me? He would sit there and he would say, I love mommy, 
I love daddy. And then his younger sister, I love faith. And then he would end it by saying, that's it. (laughs) That's how he would express discontent with his older brother. He wouldn't say, you jerk, why'd you do this? He's like, I love mommy, I love daddy, I love faith. And that's it, right? So we all knew what he was getting at, right? By not mentioning his name, he's saying, like, I'm discontent with you. When we follow the record of the apostles, it's like, we know Apostle Peter, we know Apostle John, we know Apostle uh, James, and that's it. You have to understand, Andrew and Peter were brothers. John and James were brothers. So these four were business partners. So these four, peop- four guys knew each other before, long before Christ came. They grew up together in the same town, same fishermen, same business. Their parents probably were friends, lived near each other. But the other three became the inner circle. And Andrew, who introduced all of them to Christ, just disappears. Man, you talk about a middle child complex. I don't, I don't know what happened, right? In fact, we know more about Andrew, what hasn't been written about Andrew, than than what we do know, because there's so little written about him. When Andrew leaves John, introduces Peter, his brother, to Jesus, Jesus' first thing that he says is, Peter, right? Uh, Cephas, right? Simon, that was his name before he met Christ. He says, I'm going to change your name to Peter, the rock. Right? And then later on it says, upon this rock. Right? His confession from Peter that I'm going to build my church. <laughs> what about Andrew? Andrew's the one who brought him. Well, what about his name? Nothing is mentioned. He brings Peter and they said, Peter, here's the man I've been waiting for. And then Andrew just disappears. Right? In, in fact, in Mark chapter 537, Jesus is going to heal the synagogue official's uh, daughter. And he, and he was early on in his ministry, so he didn't want the word to spread. So this is what it says. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Right? Andrew's left out. He said he didn't want this to spread. So he's only kind of three brothers, and then Andrew's not there. Transfiguration. Man, that, that's, that's a hard one, right? Transfiguration. said Matthew 17, 1. Jesus, six days later, Jesus took him, Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a mountain and by, themse- by themselves. So the, those three, Peter, James, and John, were given vision, and they heard the voice of God. And then afterwards, remember what they said, don't tell anybody. Can you imagine the three? They going up themselves anyway. You know, and then Andrew's kind of sitting back. He's like, hmm, where's Jesus taking them? And shows them the greatest vision that any human being can see. Here's the audible voice of God. And Andrew's probably waiting. He's like, hey, dude, what happened? And he's like, uh, can't tell you. Can you imagine Andrew? Like, what? You can't tell me. And then can you, can you imagine later on after the resurrection? They said, so what did you hear? We heard the voice of God. And Andrew was not taken up. And then at the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was praying in his most difficult moment, it says in Mark 14, 32-33, they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to, to be very distressed and troubled. It doesn't end there. Even after the resurrection, in Galatians 2, 9, 
when Apostle Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he says, And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, Cephas, and John, who are reputed to be pillars. So even after the resurrection, the pillars of the Christian faith in Jerusalem, and James, Peter, and John are mentioned, and not Andrew. Right? So the natural question that we have is, what did he do? Did he make a mistake early on when he wasn't given that honor? Was he whining too much? Like, what did he do? Why does he introduce? Why, why did, with his credential, why wasn't he in, in the front? Why was he not allowed to experience what the others have experienced? Scripture doesn't mention anything about his preaching. No church planting going on. There's nothing mentioned about any epistle that he wrote. He just moves to the background. In fact, the last time we hear of Andrew is in Acts chapter 1, the list of the 11 disciples, and that's it. And he's never mentioned anywhere else. James, John, Peter are significant all throughout Scripture. Andrew, Acts chapter 1, and he disappears. So the natural question is, there's reasons why there's not much mentioned about Andrew. We always hear about Andrew in the context of all the disciples, but rarely about Andrew himself, because at the end of the day, the more you look into it, it's like, what happened to Andrew? Right? Why was he not part of the inner three? There is no record of Andrew making any mistake. In fact, everything, even if it's brief, everything mentioned about Andrew was positive. So the natural question is that we would have is, why did he not get the honor? But here's... Here's the punchline. Here's the point that I'm trying to get at. Our natural inclination, because of the paradigm that we have about life, we naturally think because Andrew was more deserving. Andrew never made a mistake. Andrew was the one who sacrificed first. Andrew had the most training because of John the Baptist. Andrew was the first. Andrew was the one who introduced everybody else. If he did all of that, he deserves to be in the middle, or at least in the front. But the question that the scripture poses to us is, why does that bother us so much? Why does that bother us so much? Because everything in scripture, everything that Jesus said, goes against our natural inclination to see that as wrong. Do you remember when Jesus was going to the cross that they were, the disciples were arguing with each other who's going to be the greatest? Jesus is telling them, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to be crucified. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be rejected. And after he says that, the next thing is, well, when you're in glory, who's going to sit on to the left and to the right? There's a reason why at the Last Supper, Jesus humbles himself and he gets on the ground. He begins to wash their feet. And they said, how can you, the master, do this? You are a master. How can you do this? And Jesus says, if you do not allow me to wash your feet, I have nothing. You have no relationship with me. And he says, he who is greatest in the kingdom of God shall be the last. And he who is the most, the most serving will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. How often has Jesus said this over and over and over and over again? That it is our natural instinct to want to get ahead, want to be somebody, to be recognized, to stand on a platform that if I sacrifice now, that maybe in my 30s, there will be payoff. If I sacrifice my 30s, maybe there will be a payoff in my 40s. 
But in Matthew 23, 66, 11 to 12, it says, But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Matthew 18, 1 through 4, at the time, disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, not naive. He's not talking about the naivety or because of lack of education. It's because they have no power. He said, until you humble yourself and become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 20, 27 to 28. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I could sit here, just quote you passage after passage after passage after passage that says the exact same thing. And we sing about it. We celebrate the humility of Christ. Everything that he teaches us is about emptying ourselves. Not working hard so that we can get to the next level. Not working hard so that we can gain honor. In fact, at the core of the rebellion of man is our desire to receive worship rather than to give worship. That was the fall of Satan. That was the fall of Eve. And that was the fall of the Tower of Babel. That was the fall of Saul. That was the fall of every fall of mankind, both in nation and individual throughout history, where we are trying to one-up each other. It is the cause of wars. It is the cause of conflict. It is the cause of anxiety. It is the cause of depression. It is the cause of failures in marriage. When you have two people trying to one-up each other, it's not fair what you are doing to me. No, you're not fair. I did all of this, and you didn't give this to me. I worked so hard, and you didn't reward me with this. And at the core, our desire to work hard so that we can make something better of ourselves, at the core of it is the cause of our rebellion. From the moment that we are born, we compare with each other. From the moment that we're born... And those of you who raise children, you know what I'm talking about. If your child doesn't start speaking at certain age, something is wrong. And you, you feel proud that your child walked faster than the other child. My child can read when he's three. My child read this book when he was five. And then my child's a star player in his baseball team. And so that carries on all the way through high school. And all the conflict. You know what it was like in high school. The prettier kids. The taller kids, more athletic kids, more smarter kids, the kids who came from better homes and something, something went wrong. Why is God not fair? My, my kid went to this school. My kid got this job. It never ends. You know, my, my mom is 85 years old, and she lives in a senior home with other seniors, and she has a lot of friends there. And the biggest struggle there is what the latest thing that their kids are doing for them. It never ends. At the core of our rebellion is our desire to be honored. But the scripture says that we are crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but it's Christ who lives through us. We are hidden in his glory, and we will be glorified when he comes. Until then, he tells us to die. He who finds his life will lose it. 
He who loses his life for my sake, he will find it. Jesus says the path of life is the very opposite of what we pursue all our lives. It is a reason for our frustration. It is a reason for our bitterness. It is reasons for our conflict. It is reasons why our children rebel. And the call to carry our cross is to deny ourselves. Deny ourselves. It is the core of the gospel message. It is the core of the gospel. He's not just saving us from the penalty of sin in hell. He's saving us from an empty way of life. That empty way of life of wanting that if I work hard enough, that I can be a part of the inner core. Martin Luther King Jr., two months before he died, gave a sermon called Drum Major's Instinct. Some of you guys may or may not be familiar with that. And in that sermon, he says... We all want to be important, to surpass others, to achieve distinction, to lead the parade. Alfred Adler, the greatest psychologist, contends that this is the dominant impulse. Sigmund Freud used to contend that sex was the dominant impulse. And Adler came with a new argument saying that this is the quest for recognition, this desire for attention, this desire for distinction is the basic impulse, the basic drive of human life, this drum major instinct. And that's exactly what Jesus said. That's exactly what Jesus said. This drum major's instinct to want to be distinguished from others. Even as pastors, the greatest fall to the pastorate is his desire to be recognized as we point to Christ. As, even as we point to Christ and say how glory, glorious he is, that desire for glory creeps in. I want to glorify God. I want to magnify. I want to magnify God. And it is in this impulse, it divides the church, divides our families, and it ruins worship. As much as our natural instinct may look to Andrew and say, poor Andrew. I know there's one person in, in heaven that's not saying that. It's Andrew. Andrew's in eternity receiving all the rewards that God has promised him. God did not promise to distinguish us because of our sacrifice here. God did not promise that if you work hard, that your church is going to get bigger. God does not say that if I work hard, my children are going to go to the best schools or you're going to live a long life. He never promised any of that. He said when he comes in glory, when he comes in glory, we will be glorified with him. And he comes with the full reward. He comes with the full reward. In fact, what he did say was because they did not know me, they're not going to know you. They didn't respect me, so they're not going to respect you. They didn't love me, so they're not going to love you. They didn't distinguish me, so they're not going to distinguish you. So the more we desire distinction in this life, the more we oppose what God is actively doing in our lives. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As fundamental as that is, if we don't change our paradigm, that paradigm causes us to receive and reject parts of the Bible simply because we don't think it's fair. 
Jesus must not have said that because that doesn't sound fair. He must not have not do this because that doesn't sound fair. We don't take his word at value because we have a value system that he needs to fit into. If I don't determine it to be fair, it must not be right. It affects everything that we do, even the health and wealth gospel, right? You don't need to have purple hair and drive around, right, in, in Rolls Royce and, dry, in, and flying around with a $300 million jet to be the health and wealth gospel. Think about when we celebrate and what we mourn over. You say, oh, man, God's been so good to me because I got a good job. No, God answered my prayer because I got a raise. Think about how often we praise God for material blessings. And then we say, God, where are you? How come you're not answering my prayer? Because we got sick. We got fired. Things aren't working out. People are not favoring me. How much of that paradigm comes from the drum major's instinct? At the core of what you and I have been called for is to glorify God to the best of our ability and then go home. Go home. It's not to leave a legacy, not to have people talk about me for the next hundred years, not so that people will know who I am, not so that our church could be the biggest church and the most influential church, just to simply point to Christ and then when it's time to go home, just go home because our reward is with him. Is not here. And anything else that motivates us and moves us will destroy us. Will destroy us. A true free life, a true free life is a life free from our own ambition. Then, then and only then you will truly be free. Jesus says in John chapter 8, 32, to the Jews who had believed him, he said, if you abide in my word, and my word abide in you, then you will be my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set, set you free. But those Jews who superficially believed him and said, what do you mean set free? We've never been a slave. We're children of Moses. We, we've never been slaves. And they go back and forth. And you know what he says in John eight forty four to those same Jews? He said, you do not know what I say because you're not from my father. You reject me because your father rejects me. And you know who he says your father is? The devil. And the reason why they ended up rejecting Christ is because Jesus kept telling them, until you die, until you let go of your pride, your ambition, you will never understand why I came. He came to set us free. He came to set us free. He came to give life and give this life abundantly. This abundant life comes when we recognize that this true life is in Christ and Christ alone. I pray that your church will be a church that glorifies God. Right? That God is glorified. When people come into this room, that they see people who are emptied of themselves, humble people, just serving like Andrew in the background, not trying to get recognition and do your job and when it's time to go home, just to go home. And God receives the glory. If there's anything that I've learned through these years of ministry is God is seeking for his own glory. 
not yours, not mine, not this church. And he will glorify himself when the pastors, the leaders, the congregation no longer fights for their own glory and is willing to live their life for his. Let me pray for us and ask the Lord's blessing upon your church and upon your leadership that Christ would be exalted in this church. Father, we thank you so much for this congregation. Lord, I can already sense your heart, Lord God, for the souls of this country, whether they are born Korean or whether they are expats that have moved here. Lord, you have been a tremendous presence, Lord God, in this country for so many years. And as materialism, as desire, Lord God, of more things in this world has so deeply penetrated even into the churches, I pray that you would make King's Cross a place where your name is honored, your name is glorified. Lord, use Pastor Sungmin to speak your word in spirit and in truth. We pray, Father God, that you would use him and the trials and the sanctification, Lord God, that you have already brought him through. I pray, Father God, that this, this truly would be a place where people come to fall in love with Jesus. So for that end, I pray for your blessing and your grace to be sufficient enough. In Jesus' name we pray.